Welcome to RaiderCast, exploring Tomb Raider's myths, monsters and mysteries. Today, once again, we'll be flying in the face of anyone who's ever told you that video games will rot your brain and are not educational, by taking a look at the science behind some of Lara's more space-centric adventures. Much like the premise of Shadow of the Tomb Raider, December 14th, 2020 sees a total solar eclipse visible from parts of South America. But that isn't the only time Lara has dealt with non-terrestrial events in the games and films. So, to tell us more about Tomb Raider's cosmic conundrums, solar science and meteoric mysteries, please welcome the gaming astroholic and astrophysicist Dr. Alfredo Carpinetti. Welcome to RaiderCast, Dr. Carpinetti. Hello, a long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> uh, if uh, any of you don't know me, uh, I'm Chris's husband. Woo! It's not nepotism. Absolutely not nepotism. No, I had this it's, planned for a very long time. It's just lucky to have me here. <laughs> and uh, because he's not going to be able to edit this part out, I'm also much better than him at pretty much all of the new Tomb Raider games, and you, that's yeah. how I got into Tomb Raider. That's how my Tomb Raider journey started. I was going to ask you about, to tell us about your Tomb Raider journey, but I can't believe you weaved that into the... They have to know the truth. It's You say that, but I mean, see, what you're referring to is Shantytown. So, it? what happened in Shantytown? First of all, my Tomb Raider journey started much earlier. I was aware of uh, Lara Croft and Tomb Raider from the very beginning. I had friends that uh, played Tomb Raider, but I didn't have uh, uh, a PS1, so I never uh, played it. And uh, when uh, I started dating Chris, uh, I think it was just at the time that uh, the reboot uh, had come out, and he was like, oh, play this game, play this game, play this game. So I started playing the game while I was visiting him in Wales. And I was playing Reboots and we got to the part of Shantytown. Chris loved to do it in a very sneaky and very not getting caught kind of way. Yeah, bow and arrow from a distance. I tried that twice and I lost patience, <laughs> so I decided to do it uh, in a better way. I took my shotgun and I just run through Shantytown shooting any enemy in the face. Got so many headshots and managed to go through that level very quickly. At which point, Chris told me, that's not how you play it. <laughs> I maintain that's not how you play it. You're supposed to suffer. You're supposed to do it the slow way. You're supposed to get frustrated. You're supposed to do it a million and one times, sneaky. I would argue that classic Lara would oh. have solved this like I did. Oh, turning that one on me. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, that's <laughs> yeah. pretty much... Moving on. Moving on. Uh, that's pretty much my Tomb Raider journey and everything else. Uh, and I know a lot about Tomb Raider is thanks to you. And uh, you listen... You didn't really have a choice. Yes, that is. <laughs> Stockholm Syndrome. That is uh, pretty much everything that I know. And I played uh, all of the new games. Uh, I know a few things about the olds. 
Uh, and I think we also played the co-op Temple of Osiris together. Yes, as well. we did. And obviously watched the movies. And I'm very excited to talk about some of the astronomy and space-related uh, teams in Tomb Raiders, because some of them obviously are fantasy and not exactly happening like that but at the same time some quite uh, accurate so we can explore that that's really cool so for a bit more context alfredo if you don't mind introducing yourself a little bit more and telling people why i've chosen you for this particular episode okay i guess not because I'm your husband, I think uh, you're asking for <laughs> my scientific credential. Yes. Uh, I have a PhD in astrophysics and none of the things that we're actually going to discuss is my um, specific area of expertise. Uh, my area of expertise is uh, galactic uh, and... Uh, we're talking much more small yeah. scale, I suppose, in this. Yeah, we're talking um, solar system, we're talking uh, uh, the Earth-Moon system, and we're talking about uh, meteors and asteroids. Ooh. So, I would like to start by delving a bit into Shadow of the Tomb Raider. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the game, Lara Croft, a little bit selfish, a little bit preoccupied, steals an ancient dagger and sets in motion a Maya apocalypse or a series of unfortunate events, shall we say. At around the same time, we have this eclipse mm -hmm. that is going to be visible from South America around the Amazon Peru area. Now, towards the end of the game, spoilers for anyone who hasn't played it, but it's been out for a while now, get on it. And this eclipse happens and you have this terrific final boss fight, huge eclipse in the sky. Now this eclipse lasts the duration of the fight, which I would guess on average is probably about five minutes or so. Yeah. Probably a lot faster for some people who do it like speed runs, but mm -hmm. potentially much longer. Please tell us a little bit about eclipses because in my mind, six minutes is way too long for an eclipse. Like to, for the sun to remain completely hidden, that seems like a very long time. Is there a lot of sort of fantasy interpretation going on here? What do you think? So, I would say that the least believable thing in uh, Shadow is not actually the eclipse and its length. Uh, it's more about that uh, Lara is responsible for everything that happens. So I would believe it more in the fact that uh, this cataclysm are predicted mm -hmm. uh, by the prophecy and there is fate and destiny. I don't know, maybe it's the being brought up Catholic, but it's more believable that uh, the, uh, the tsunami, the eclipse were predicted to happen than uh, she's causing it uh, by removing the dagger. Yeah, yeah. But apart from uh, that little consideration, everything about the eclipse is uh, quite scientific. The reason why I make that point is because I think there was a comment about how the removal of the dagger starts the chain of the events that culminates in the eclipse. So it makes it feel that uh, in a way she's causing the eclipse. Mm. But uh, we actually know that, uh, well, eclipses, uh, we can predict them way in the future mostly because we've been predicting them and studying them for 
thousands of years. So, what is an eclipse? In this case, in the case of the game, and in the case of the um, December 14, uh, 2020 uh, eclipse, is an eclipse of the Sun. So the Moon, the Earth and the Sun are aligned in a way that uh, the Moon is blocking the light from the Sun. They are in what is called Sisiji, which is a great Scrabble word, and it means... Uh, <laughs> Triple score. Yeah, and if you do it, I think it's 24 points, which is amazing. Uh, but it means that three celestial bodies are in a straight line. Interesting. Eclipses are, on one hand, are a lot more common than people think. On the other hand, are a lot less common than they could be. They happen almost every six months. There is wow, a solar frequently. eclipse. Yes. Wow. And it's just because of the alignment between the Earth, the Sun, and the Moon. Mm -hmm. So the orbital plane of the Moon is about five degrees incline compared to the orbital plane of the Earth. It takes a few rotation of... For it to sort of to get into line. Yeah. I see. Okay. And the alignment that happens every six months or so can be partial, can be total, can be hybrid and can be annular in which you have the ring of fire. Okay. And it really depends on the complexity of the lunar orbit around the Earth. This means that uh, there are a lot of uh, solar eclipses, but at the same time, a lot of them, they are just partial. A lot of them are just crossing the ocean. And so the big events that we think uh, total solar eclipse over a lot populated areas uh, it's quite rare we've been quite fortunate because in 2017 uh, we flew to the u.s to see the great american eclipse it and it was a great american eclipse and it was incredible it was absolutely stunning one of the most spectacular things i have ever seen we nearly didn't we nearly didn't we but... only saw about 30 seconds of it before it clouded yeah. over but... and and that mm. was um where we were i think uh, it was a minute 12 seconds if i remember correct and the maximum during that eclipse was about a minute 50. for the total for the total so the length of totality yeah but actually you can have longer eclipses i think the next longest is going to be in 2026 but the longest possible is seven minutes 31. oh so there is there is an absolute finite limit yeah and again it depends on the apparent speed of the moon, the apparent uh -huh. speed of the sun, their position, and where the shadow appears on Earth. Might that be... Because I think in Tomb Raider, the event happens and it's visible from Peru, and Peru is very close to the equator. Is that relevant? Like, could they get away with saying this one in the game lasted so long because it was near the equator? They um, certainly get away to say um, something like that. Actually, uh, the um, eclipse that I was referring to is in 2027, August um, 2nd, 2027, and it will be visible from uh, the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean, and the maximum duration of totality will be observed in Egypt, uh, roughly 60 kilometers southeast of Luxor, Whoa. and will last 6 minutes and 22 seconds. Within that distance, you could literally go and stand in the Temple of Luxor or at the Temple of Karnak and witness a total solar eclipse. Yep. 
on August 2nd, 2027. With the size, yeah, we're we doing are, it. We are going there and it doing It depends that. about the size of uh, the path of totality, but I think... Uh, I would have thought like, a distance of 60 kilometers still wouldn't ish. really affect that. In Luxor, the max width of the band is going to be 258 kilometers. So, yes, we can be in the we're temple of uh, Karnak uh, for over six minutes enjoying uh, this Fantastic. eclipse. We're going to merge those two Raider games together. Fantastic. <laughs> For the people in South America, December 14th this year, how long will totality last? It will be quite good. It's going to be visible in the afternoon of December 14th, and it will last uh, um, 2 minutes 10 seconds, which is quite good. That's really cool. Yeah. Wow. So I'd like to finish talking about eclipses by having a little bit of a delve into the past. What did people used to think eclipses were? Do you know much about ancient things like omens? Were they of good things, of bad things? What did eclipses signify? There have been a lot of myths and legends associated with uh, um, eclipses uh, uh, throughout uh, world cultures, but I think, uh, I find more fascinating that for a very long time, humanity has known what eclipses are. For as much as there have been like a uh, um, connection with demons, uh, um, superstition, uh, um, dragons, etc., a lot of our understanding of uh, astronomy is thanks of accurate calculation that uh, humans three, four, five thousand years ago were doing by measuring eclipses. The ancient Greeks were able to understand the complex motion of the moon thanks to the knowledge of the eclipses. It's not what we interpret as modern astronomy. There is a lot of astrology, there are a lot of superstition, but that data is crucial to our current understanding. On the shoulders of giants. Absolutely. Wonderful. So moving on to the next part of the episode, I want to talk a little bit about the very, very first Tomb Raider film starring Angelina Jolie, because we're going to be going a little bit further away from the sun, out into our solar system. In the film, Lara Croft discovers a ticking clock, and this clock began ticking because of a planetary alignment. Now this mm -hmm. is to do with the Illuminati, and there's an entire plot that also revolves around something else a little bit spacey, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Also, there is uh, Naked Daniel Craig in the movie. There is Naked Daniel Craig in the movie. On the subject of celestial bodies, uh -huh. hey. yeah. she looks through a telescope and she sees all of the planets aligned in the sky. Can that happen? Well, yes and no. Planets can uh, um, sort of align but not in the way that is described. Not in a very straight line, if you're No, looking. I'm afraid that not. Couldn't, no. That could never happen. So, oh. let's start with the first issue with uh, that idea. Yes, the planets are more or less on the same plane, so they're orbiting more or less on the same plane in the solar system, which is more or less around the equator of the sun, but not exactly it. So, so they're going to be on different levels. Yes. 
So they couldn't be in a straight line because of that? Yeah. Okay. What happens <laughs> is that we have, it's possible for the planets to be mostly in the same region of the sky. So we've seen earlier this year that uh, I think uh, Mercury, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn and Venus were all um, in the western sky. That's amazing. I was literally about to ask, like, what are the maximum number you could actually see in the sky at once? Well, so with telescopes, uh, it's, I think uh, it's possible to see them in the same area of the sky about once every few thousand years. Wow. But so that's again, really cool. Yeah, but uh, as a cosmic MacGuffin uh, to make something happen, it's completely unimportant. Simply because uh, when it comes to gravity, distance and size that matter. If you need to be twice as far, or if you are twice as far, you need to be four times uh, as massive to have the same influence. So the planets, uh, even though Jupiter, Saturn, uh, Uranus and Neptune are very massive, they're so far away that their gravitational influence on our planet is negligible. It's a clock. I found it last night. It was ticking. Must be one of them ticking clocks, eh? So they wouldn't be able to cause any effect on Earth? No, this or is... Or on objects on Earth? No, but it, this is why it feels... I mean, it's sci-fi, isn't it? Yeah, but this is why Shadow feels a lot more... Uh, realistic, that is, the effect of the moon and the sun. Ironically grounded. Ironically grounded. <laughs> it's the first stage of the alignment of all nine planets, culminating in a full solar eclipse. It only happens once every 5,000 years. So, despite that, is something that we really enjoy planetary alignment because we like things that are neat and tidy. And Another thing happening this December is a famous uh, planetary alignment, which is the Great Conjunction. Ooh, what's that? It's when Saturn and Jupiter, they will be so close in the sky that they will appear as a single object. And it's going to happen on Whoa. the 21st of December, 2020. And uh, if you have a chance to go out, uh, go and look at it. It's to, a Yule star. To, yeah, it's a Yule star. Uh, and I'm really hoping that... Uh, we get the good weather, so I can oh, see Oh, I'd love to see that. That's amazing. So December 2020, pretty fantastic for astronomy. Yes, uh, if you are somewhere in South America with good weather. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> now, as you were talking about, people like to see these things because of like symmetry and things looking pretty and assigning meaning to them. Again, diving into the past of these things, do you know of any sort of myths or anything to do with alignments and what they used to think they were or were they even known about because so long ago people didn't realize that they were planets they just assumed they were stars the planets have been known for a long time they didn't uh, recognize them as object like earth although it's complex uh, as an idea because uh, there's definitely been school of thought for many thousands of years, again, across the world, that consider Earth and the Sun and the system as something that um, would be common across the universe. But I think until um, the 
advent of the telescope, it was not clear what uh, these other worlds were, but they knew that the planets were not stars. The word itself, planets, comes from the Greek for wanderer, mm -hmm. because they moved in the sky in a peculiar fashion that didn't match the stars, which were in a way fixed on a celestial sphere. So I think in terms of myths and legends, this would probably tie very heavily into ancient Egyptian astrology and study of the stars in that sense and assigning meaning to things like where these wanderers in the sky are and what that could mean for the people on Earth, I suppose. Absolutely. Astrology for such a long time was data science. They were cataloging so much information about the stars because they believed that by understanding the position of these planets with the position of the zodiac constellation, they would be able to understand some secret about the universe. Magical thinking again. Magical thinking, but it's also they were aware that there was so much information there. To be honest, what they didn't have was thousands of years of information before mm -hmm. them yeah. that could show them a different approach. But at the same time, there were a lot of thinkers. And again, we often just consider Western uh, philosophy, but there were a lot of thinkers all across the world understanding that uh, these objects uh, were not portents of doom. They were just... Uh, other object in the natural world. So it's not always doom and gloom? It is not always doom and gloom, but for many, many centuries, and until astronomy got properly separated from astrology, and even there, it's probably just over the last 300 years, the position, etc., could be spelled doom or fortune, but the planet themselves and the stars were not uh, the indication of uh, the fault was never in uh, hmm. in our stars. Yeah, it was simply it was the occasion to call for the interpretation. That's pretty awesome. And I am going to swiftly head over back around the sun to talk about meteors and meteorites because this is something that has featured quite a bit throughout the series in the games and the films. In Tomb Raider 3 the game starts with a meteor heading towards Earth. It smashes down into a dense rainforest jungle, creates a massive explosion, and then the game skips forwards to present day, which was uh, 1998, which it said was Antarctica and people arrived there and they carved idols out of this meteorite. Then, thanks to the crew of Charles Darwin's ship, they got spread around the world. That's basically the premise of that game. It's quite a cool adventure setup. But first of all, are there any sort of well-known impact craters in Antarctica? And because I know there is a landmass under all that snow and ice in Antarctica, how long ago is it likely to have been like a rainforest or a jungle? Was that ever a thing? So, lots of uh, questions. Uh, first of all, Antarctica used to be a rainforest. Uh, mostly it was uh, 
a swampy temperate rainforest like um, the one that you might find in modern day um, New Zealand. Well, not super swampy, but definitely temperate rather than a tropical rainforest. Mm-hmm. Uh, about 90 million years ago, so at Whoa. the time of uh, the dinosaurs, I think uh, probably the peak of uh, T-Rex, if I remember correctly. Cool, that's really good to know. But Antarctica has been a frozen uh, landmass for tens of millions of years. So the area of Antarctica, mm-hmm. is that known for meteorite impact craters? Well. It's known for asteroid impacts, but also for meteorites. So uh, it's just about the size. Uh, Size queen. (laughs) We know that there is a massive uh, asteroid impact uh, called uh, the Ross Craters that has the diameter of 550 kilometers that formed during the Oligocene, which is the epoch uh, going from uh, 33.9 to 23 million years ago. There are two other large craters, one that might have formed over 500 million years ago, but it's very uncertain, and one of uh, unknown age. So large impact crater have been possible. When it comes to asteroids and meteors in Antarctica, there are some uncertain uh, craters that we cannot confirm that happen but they could be significantly big and technically having happened in a recent epoch which did not lead to an extinction event like mm-hmm. in yeah. the case of um, Chicook Slum which is the dinosaur killing asteroid. What's exciting about meteors is that there is a lot of meteors being collected from Antarctica and the reason why that happens is because uh, it's very easy to spot. Uh, <laughs> little dark, black rock yeah in black all the rock snow. in an uh, uh, environment that is just white wow and it is not the only place like for example there are meteor hunters uh, in the australia outback uh, that uh, track fireballs uh, and try to predict uh, if they will leave behind a meteorite because not all meteors turn into meteorites so you need to have quite something that is quite sizable to be able to survive the atmosphere. Diving in quickly with a little question here, that's something I've wondered for a while. If you saw a meteor flying overhead and it crashed fairly close to where you live, like say half an hour away, and you drove out to see the crater and you happened to be the first one there and there was a tiny bit or there was fragments of meteorite lying around, are you legally allowed to keep them if you find them? I think so. That's really cool. I think so. I think it would be nice if you... I mean, donated some to... To a museum. Yeah. But also, question for you. Mm-hmm. There's not going to be a big crater, but you see, you find this rock. Are you going to grab it? Mm, not with my bare hands. Why not? Because I think it would be very, very, very cold. Correct answer. I know well, it was going to be very, very uh, hot. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a trick question. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, it's fascinating that uh, most meteors, by the time they uh, touch ground, are cold because they are at uh, pretty much the very cold temperature of deep space. Mm -hmm. And as they burn through the atmosphere, the outer layers that are burning are just getting a sort of flesh-eated and destroyed. And by the time that they are almost Earth, they are at um, 
terminal velocity so they are going quite fast but not incredibly fast and they are just going not going to warm up that much yeah. so it's going to be very cold so in a lot of the games things are carved out of meteorite and I think it's this sort of rock from the heavens, something celestial, something possibly even divine that's fell from the heavens. Now we can carve things out of it. In Tomb Raider 3, there are separate artifacts that are spread around the world, as I mentioned. In Shadow of the Tomb Raider, pretty sure the dagger and the box that the dagger goes into were carved out of meteorite. That's based on two things, a little snippet of information from the Art of Shadow of the Tomb Raider book, but also in the game itself, Lara reads an inscription which says something along the lines of the box and, and or the dagger were forged in heaven and came to earth. You see the symbolism there. But also up close, the texture of the dagger and the texture of the box looks very much like meteorite. Also, Heading back to the Tomb Raider 1 first film with Angelina Jolie, the Triangle of Light was carved from a meteorite that hit again, I think it was actually in Antarctica, by a civilization who came to see this crater, they started to worship the rock and they forged an artifact out of it. So carved idols and artifacts from meteorite are very common within the Tomb Raider universe. Are they very common? Are there famous artifacts that we know of that are carved from meteorite? Absolutely. Not only there are famous examples of uh, artifacts made out of meteorites, uh, they're also the oldest uh, metal artifact known is from meteorite. Oh, what is that? Egyptian iron beads. And they've been made Ooh. from hammered meteoritic iron which is quite exciting, and the date to circa 3200 BC. This is quite uh, um, interesting. There are a few more things uh, uh, connected to Egypt uh, and uh, meteors. Uh, Tutankhamun has a famous dagger. This made, is exciting. Yeah, made of uh, metal from uh, a meteor. And I find it even more fascinating, this impact in the desert produced some glass beads uh, that have been carved into pendants and amulets. Is that the yellow yeah. scarab? Yeah, the yellow the scarabs. And that is just sand that the heat of the impact turned into glass. That is incredible. And that is absolutely fascinating. I am certain that the use of meteoric iron is probably been extremely common throughout every civilization that was doing metalwork mm -hmm. simply because meteors uh, iron nickel meteorites uh, were maybe not an abundant source of metals but an easy one because they are very they're already an alloy and they're very uh, low on uh, contamination you don't have to mine it and extract it uh, you just find it somewhere so it's quite common to find then across the world I wouldn't say they're common to find because meteors, in a way, they're rare, but they are not uncommon things. Okay, so I'm pretty glad they're not altogether common because that makes me even happier with our choice of wedding rings being forged out of meteorite now as well. Yeah, that uh, was a good choice on our part. Makes them a little bit more special. Yes, but the fact that the oldest surviving 
metal object uh, comes from uh, iron from a meteor tells you that at least uh, and again maybe it's because in the desert the uh, nice big shiny rock uh, is quite visible <laughs> yes that uh, ancient egyptian could see it as a nice easy source of uh, metal that he didn't have to dig and no doubt it was of great spiritual importance to them as well I think of any ancient culture would see it. Well, depends if they'd seen it coming down. I suppose so, yeah, if they didn't know where it came from. Yeah. That's true. But yeah, if they seen it uh, come down as, a, oh, there is this piece of heavens come down and I can make a dagger out of it. <laughs> Damn right I'm making a dagger out of it. <laughs> or a lovely necklace, uh, like in the oldest example. Wonderful, okay. This has been a fantastic episode. It's been very, very fun. And it has been worth the wait. This is one of the first episodes I planned back halfway through season one. I thought, I need you on board to talk about space. There are so many space things in Tomb Raider and I'm so glad it finally happened. Well, I'm glad that uh, for once our role are reversed uh, in terms of uh, podcasting. Ah, as in I'm the expert and you're not. Well, I would also still consider that I'm the expert. But yes, I was referring to our other podcast. Go check plugging. it out. Yeah, so shameless plug. It's it's still our podcast. Yes. So go check out our other podcast, The Astroholic Explains. Exactly. It's the same dynamic. You ask questions and I answer. Yeah. But uh, it was fun to have a different uh, uh, approach. And I hope if any of the people who make the Tomb Raider games are listening get putting more space things into the games in future so I can have you back on as a guest again. Yeah, come on. There were a lot of things about aliens. Do aliens now. Yeah, like, do aliens again. You know what? This is the Indiana Jones paradox. As in, you want it to be aliens but for them not to show it? No, what is the fact that uh, Indiana Jones uh, was a lot more believable when it was weird religious stuff uh, than when it was suddenly aliens. I think it was always aliens. <laughs> and on that note. And on that note. Hey, I get to say that. It's my podcast. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And uh, all you listeners, remember, a shotgun to the face is the way through Shantytown. It's not. Goodbye. <laughs>